0: Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com.
1: I think that all of the things that we've been working on for so long, that they have to come to the fore now because they were just kind of common sense that was just very hard to override the ideology, you know, of neoliberalism and, you know, all of the kind of the growth fetishists. And, and suddenly we need to base our economics back in reality, you know, Main Street and the real world.
0: That's Hazel Henderson, globally renowned futurist, establishing the groundwork for all practical economic theory, that nature and humanity, not marketplace preoccupations, are the real heart of human economies. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's colleague and co-host for this program. Today, we're going to revisit a conversation from 2020, which Ellen and I had with Hazel Henderson, our colleague at the Public Banking Institute, who died this past week at 89 years of age. A pioneering thinker, a friend, colleague, Hazel Henderson conducted a lifetime of breaking through notional barriers of prevailing market and economic paradigms and opened up a new category of economic consciousness that, as she said in our opening remarks just now, dealt with the real world. Hazel was the founder of Ethical Markets Media, which is a widely acclaimed media channel and institute, and a repository for an institute of thought and a volume of resources that fostered new awareness about how human relationships have formed markets of exchange since the very beginnings of civilization. Markets are in our DNA, Hazel said, and you'll hear her say it on today's program as well. You'll notice references to how the COVID pandemic that we were dealing with at the time were affecting national and international markets, and how the powers that be managed to bail out the usual beneficiaries while letting the people just struggle with underfunded programs and mismanaged supply chains. But our conversation today is offered mostly to give you a sense of Hazel's lifelong commitment to the things that really matter, life and the living world that creates all markets, and how her breakthrough work over these many decades put a different focus on investment realities, challenging, for example, the assessment of GNP, the gross national product, as not really being reflective of what the economy is actually about or what it's producing. Her breakthrough work over these many decades has brought that different focus forward at a time when these realities are beginning to crash in on the human experience of riding this planet uh, into the next era. Hazel authored nine books and hundreds of articles. She received multiple honorary Doctor of Science degrees, and she was best known as a syndicated worldwide columnist, lifelong futurist, with 40 years forecasting the need for the current transition from the fossil fuel era of the 21st century into a green economy. Hazel was born in Britain, and as a free-thinking, independent person, she was remarkably proud that in the 1970s, the Public Relations Society of America called her the most dangerous woman in America. (laughs) Hazel's early writing predicted the overhauling of conventional economic theory, to take account of pollution, resource depletion, and social costs that were ignored by company balance sheets and, of course, the GDP. And as a result, she was ostracized by the economics community. She famously called economics a form of brain damage. (laughs) It was the kind of candid assessment of the groupthink around economics that ostracized her from that industry for a good while. And it reflects the sort of disorientation that lets us evaluate the successes of our economy based on the amount of profit growth within commodities and services, rather than the impacts that our economy has on fundamental resources and on the quality of life and on the planet itself without which, of course, human life and all economies could not exist to begin with. So we see the truth of Hazel's awareness all around us. Finally, as these core systems of the planet fall into threatened states of health and even survival, and we're seeing that how humans themselves are in line for a brash awakening of new environmental realities that will surely impact the fancifully contrived notions of marketplace values. Hazel's life brought that consciousness not only into being, but increasingly into deeper focus that exposes how brittle and ignorant our policies and thinking are when placed side by side with the realities of nature. Among her remarkable achievements was her co-founding of Citizens for Clean Air in New York City way back in 1964, which led to the Air Pollution Index for weather broadcasts. She was named Citizen of the Year by the New York County Medical Society back in 1967 for her environmental leadership, and she was recognized by President Johnson at the signing of the Clean Air Act. Her writings laid out the theoretical underpinnings for societies based on renewable resources, energy, materials efficiency, and social equity, beyond just GDP. Her ethical markets media company produced the acclaimed TV series that covered corporate social responsibility, which was mostly ignored by the mainstream financial media at the time. Such is the nature of being a forward-thinking, independent mind. Taking the courage to speak out the truth as it was understood by a truly authentic observer, Hazel Henderson. Let's talk with Ellen now about Hazel for a moment and catch up with Ellen's latest writings. Well, Ellen, we've just recently lost uh, a colleague and dear friend, uh, f- global futurist, uh, a really remarkable person. Hazel Henderson has left at the age of 89. Uh, a member of our board of directors at Public Banking Institute, but so much more in the world of uh, economics uh, and of uh, consciousness about money and community. What are your thoughts about Hazel's passing at this point?
2: Well, it did make me feel choked up when I heard that. She, She was 89 years old, what really inspired me about her was she was completely self-made. I mean, she was just all about an issue. She had no college degrees. She came to, she was British born, came to the United States when she was 22 years old. Uh Uh, She was 89 when she passed away last week and this week, several days ago. And uh, she she started out doing very, you know, very ordinary jobs. She got married. She had a child and she moved to New York when she was 22 and then got married and um, and was upset about all the air pollution yeah. <laughs> in New York yeah. and started mobilizing other women and you know wrote to the mayor and did all these did leaflets and then she started writing she taught herself economics she expanded into something broader than just air pollution and you know got into economics obviously and she was on our board our advisory board and she was on other advisory boards too and she started her own ethical markets tv station and website and did a lot of writing. I mean, she was really a a moving force out there. She influenced Ralph Nader when he ran for president and she influenced Robert F. Kennedy. I guess she flew him around in a helicopter to show (laughs) show him all the pollution. And then, you know, he made a speech after that where he incorporated some of her thoughts. She was big on the um, um, GNP, or, you know, the gross national product was uh, not... Yeah, Not miss- a correct characterization of the economy, that it left out the important things, the things that made life worthwhile. <laughs> so anyway, she was a great inspiration. She, I visited her twice at her home for these think tank uh-huh. events, you know, like a dozen people. And, um, and she was just a great mover and shaker and a great inspiration. And she was um, a great advisor for us because she was very into public banking. So it was a yeah. right. thought.
0: Yeah she's quite a remarkable person as uh, she was particularly proud uh, back in the 70s when she had just you know done this foray into eco- economics the public relations society of america called her the most dangerous woman in america <laughs> <laughs> dangerous is-
2: to the big interests that uh- you know, not dangerous to the people, but dangerous to the big corporate interests.
0: Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, she was, uh, she had this, uh, the GDP analysis and, you know, uh, assessment of how wrong it was insofar as it ignored the natural, ten- the natural realities of economy, what nature and impact on human beings were. And she, she, uh, she got ostracized inside of the economics community uh, because she uh, would regularly reiterate the phrase economics is a form of brain damage. <laughs> and uh, so uh, she was, uh, you know, outside of the world of mainstream economics for so long uh, because she really just trusted her sense of what was going on in the world it was very obvious and you know and if if uh, the uh, if economic systems do not take into account nature and the impact on on, on human life they can't be sustainable therefore they're bogus uh, in terms of their theory. So the neoliberal uh, uh, tradition out of which, which we've been living with, which we are now trying to break free of, uh, is, uh, was really one of the things that she helped to pioneer a consciousness uh, around.
2: Yeah, a great soul. We'll miss her.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. Our conversation that we're going to be replaying in just a moment here, what goes back to 2020. So you'll hear her make some remarks about uh, how uh, imprudent uh, the planners are when a pandemic comes along. How our supply chains have been really, you know, were, we're undermined, uh, and also by contrast how the power of the money uh, was taking care of and bailing out the big corporations but not doing much for people. That of course is a, a reprise that we hear all the time. but that's of course why she was a big supporter of public banking. you know being able to get the money power back into the hands uh, or into the hands of, of the public as opposed to having to uh, take what falls off the tables of the, of the powerful elites. Well, Ellen, uh, Hazel has been a real gift, and uh, we will celebrate her, and uh, and of course, uh, looking forward to carrying on her work and the legacy that she's left us.
1: Yeah.
0: We haven't talked to you since you've done a, a number of recent articles. Tell us some of the focuses that you've got, because we want to dig into them later.
2: Yeah, okay. So my last three articles were called The Coming Global Financial Revolution, Russia is Following the American Playbook. That was one. A monetary reset where the rich don't own everything. That was another. Bouncing off the great reset of the World Economic Forum. And a reset that serves the people, which is basically how we would re- redo it, and how it needs to be done. And this is actually our opportunity as well. You know, Klaus Schwab has said hmm. this is a great opportunity. You, you, when the world is in crisis, that's when you have a chance to change things. Well, it's wow. our opportunity too. The, No matter who you think put the world in crisis. I mean, I myself am highly suspicious. But the thing is, we're in crisis, and it is an opportunity to come up with new systems. So what I still like, and I've always liked is the American system, what we've always, you know, what uh, Henry Clay and Henry Carey and those early American economists and politicians called the American system. So Alexander Hamilton's idea, like us, he had, he was the, the first secretary, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary, of course, and like where we are today, he had this massive debt piled on debts of the states, which were the colonies, of course, and now were the states. They won the the war but they had all these debts. And so he persuaded Congress to undertake the state debts. And what he did with them was to roll them into capital for the, for the first U.S. bank. So basically capitalized the bank with the state's debts. So you could buy, if you were a, an investor, these were non-voting stocks. If you were an investor, you could use part gold, which was you know official currency then, and part uh, these bonds, which were the state's debts. And today we've got uh, you know a30 trillion dollar federal debt and everybody thinks that it's impossible to repay, which of course it is but we can do the same thing and that is the basis of the national infrastructure bank bill hr 3339 yeah. that uh, that they will take uh national debt and trade it for yeah. stock, non-voting stock in in the national infrastructure bank and um and pay 2% on top of that so that's yeah. still my favorite solution i mean uh, yeah. and then of course you have lincoln who Went yeah. back to the American colonists who just issued their own money directly and um, Roosevelt who used Reconstruction Finance Corporation to rebuild the country. We're in that position now where we desperately need infrastructure. We don't have the money for it, but we can use the same American system, sovereign money, sovereign credit uh, that are forebears used and very successfully we need to do that again so that's what i was writing about so we
0: can get a grip on our economy by going back to our roots uh, exactly the system yeah yeah. Uh, yeah great great stuff uh, ellen and, uh, and people can get that on your blog in you know, a web of debt uh blog to get the articles but uh of course we we pass them uh, widely they're, they're, they're published widely around well thank you very much let's uh, let's revisit our our time with hazel as, uh, as precious as it was, and, and revering her as we move on with that work. Thanks so much, Ellen.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: And now let's turn to the conversation that Ellen and I had with Hazel Henderson, the author and founder of Ethical Markets Growing the Green Economy, and an international lecturer a thought leader and futurist about the impacts of economy in the real world.
2: Um, you wrote this excellent piece uh, called Pandemics, Lessons Looking Back from 2050, along with... Fritchoff, F- My Catra.
1: buddy, I have uh, co-authored stuff with Fritchoff for 30 years. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> We've been sort of intellectual companions, and he did. He ended up doing a deep dive into the ecosystems with his last book, you know, the systems view of life, uh-huh. and all of that. And of course, I decided to do a deep dive into. The human, more the human condition. <laughs> and so it was great to reconnect with him on this piece, you know, because um, it's so clear now. I, I was just reading a piece by one of our advisors, Professor Walden Bellow, who has been a, a legislator in the Philippines for many years. And he's he was just pointing out, you know, with this whole Belt and Road thing that mm-hmm. the Chinese have been doing, you know, the Chinese obviously uh, have a huge huge opportunity here to kind of take over the whole globalization agenda. And he was saying, uh, which is rather similar to what Fritjof and I were saying, that Just the amount of incursions into environments that Belt and Road will require, Um, they're talking about um, additional alien species which will be driven out of forest areas. Ninety-eight new amphibians, 177 reptiles, 391 birds, and 150 mammals will now be Another threat to the humans, you know, due to um, the transmission of viruses. So the the thing that's so interesting about the globalization model using, you know, neoclassical economic cash only GDP kind of model has just left us all so incredibly vulnerable. You know the whole just-in-time supply chains, where we suddenly find that all of our face masks—hey, they come from China, you know—and all of our pharmaceuticals come from China.
2: Yeah, it's one of those uh, emperor has no clothes moments. Or isn't it when the tide is out, you can see who's swimming naked?
3: Yes, so, absolutely. I mean, I, that
2: was kind of the gist of your uh, paper. I've been so. saying this all along, but nobody bought it. You know, the, every, Things yes. seem to be going along fine. The stock market's doing great, and that's the politician's barometer of whether the economy's doing well. But underneath, there were all these deficiencies and weaknesses, and things yes. didn't work. And now, that's... when we're in a crisis, we can see that they didn't work, and we absolutely have to change the system. Yes. whether we will, I don't know, because like the Fed has stepped in and exercised all these powers, without authorization, and they're bailing out the banks. So we can't say, well, you've got to make those big banks be public utilities now because you bailed them out, because it's already been done. You know, there's no leverage that that they failed to use the the leverage power that they could have used there. So anyway, that's so our big conundrum right now is how do we get this message out there and how do we get some real... Uh, change that's all for the better instead of just, um, you know, sort of band-aids and then in two months they'll say okay, crisis is over back to business as usual Yes,
1: exactly I I think that all of the things that we've been working on for so long um, that they have to come to the fore now because they were just kind of common sense that was just very hard to override the ideology, you know, of neoliberalism and, you know, all of the kind of the growth fetishists. And and suddenly, that's really what we're putting up on our website now. All of the uh, comments we're getting from our advisory board members, you know, from Hong Kong and... Um, Thailand and all over the place, you know, who've been saying all of these things for years and years, you know, that we need to base our economics back in reality, you know, Main Street and the real world. And uh, so uh, I think that if we all work to push that, I mean, I've been watching the debate going on in the Senate now on this $2 trillion bill. Uh And it's just amazing, you know, there's still half a billion in there to bail out um, hotels and airlines and cruise lines, for God's sake, with no strings attached, you know. Not even... uh, And actually, I was watching uh, Elizabeth Warren. She was on... um, Bloomberg uh, talking about um, uh, the whole business of buybacks, you know, and what she is proposing is if you're going to do any stuff of bailing out big corporations, that there's just a whole lot, lot of things have to be legally required of companies, not just, you know, hoping that they don't do buybacks, you know.
2: Right. And they've essentially bailed out the banks, though they don't call it a bailout. So, you know, we were always petitioning before that the next time this happens, we want to make sure that the banks are required to use their funds appropriately, etc., that they're actually public utilities. But that's that's been bypassed because it's a backdoor bailout. It's not obvious. You know, nobody voted on it. The Senate didn't vote on it, or the Congress didn't vote on it. Yeah. Fed just did it using their alleged emergency powers under Section 133, I think. But the one thing they bypassed or didn't do was uh, helping the state and local uh, state and local governments, which they, yes. they've got another provision that makes that quite. They don't even have to go to the treasury, you know, and get approval like under 133. So that's that's one thing we're pushing for.
1: Well, I think that some of the changes, for example, I take wired magazine and normally throw most of it away, you know, because it was all of the fantasies of the. Cinema. Valley Adolescent Guide, and I just received my new edition of Wired, and I read every page on it. It's an entirely different 180 degrees, and they've just gone through every aspect of the real world and how to shift to... a low carbon, a green economy, and how to dump fossil fuels, I couldn't believe it. So it is possible that this is going to turn around a lot of paradigms. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think uh, we all hope for, you know, in the public banking area and so many areas. It will be quite obvious that there's no other way of getting from here to there.
3: It seems to me that we're seeing the imminence of that paradigm shift because people have been disenfranchised from the monetary hopes that they had once been raised on. The American dream at all kind of went away for most people. And now we're down to basic needs that are yeah. not only water and air, familial stability, education, health, uh, the kind of the human rights that FDR pointed out. People want some basic needs, life support services from their governments.
1: Absolutely. Yes, uh, I mean as
3: opposed to a monetary pursuit.
1: Yeah, I mean that whole era of government bad, private sector good is so childish that i think everybody's realized now you know that of course the government has to step in i mean look at the situation right now where we've in uh, trump has invoked the war powers act or whatever it's called you know um and yet states are still forced to compete with each other to buy masks and gowns and uh and, and gloves, you know, and uh, Cuomo was saying in his press conference that it used to be um, under a dollar to buy a mask, but now he's competing with California and competing with Illinois, competing with private hospitals, and the price of a face mask now is up to $7. I mean, you can't imagine how stupid this is. I mean, if you don't nationalize procurement and prevent the price gouging, I mean, can you can you imagine that this administration doesn't even know how to prevent the price gouging? So it seems like this whole uh, sort of small is beautiful idea that many of us had in the 1970s, you know, um, with community-owned wind generators and solar farms and farmers markets and organic agriculture and all of that, um, just seems na- just to make the most eminent sense, you know.
3: Yes, Uh, and changes the nature of markets, you know, from money to service.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. I wrote a paper called Markets, uh, Problem Twins, Advertising and Trading, pointing out that both of those activities have been in excess for quite a long time. And uh, one of the problems now is we're still using the old ideology from the Cold War and the last century, you know, of communism versus capitalism, and we fought wars over it and everything like that. And the whole thing is that there's nothing wrong with markets. I mean, markets are in human DNA. We've been doing markets ever since we came out of trees. And markets evolve and They're still evolving, and they're evolving now in the direction of the Green New Deal. So what's wrong with that, you know? And so how do we, here's a question for you, Walt. How do we dump all these old old ideologies, you know, the socialism, all stupid stuff?
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. just say the mischaracterization of things like money as a commodity instead of a relationship it's been adopted of course as a commodity that's at the, at the base of our sense of market wisdom or market reality but it's all about relationships it's all about community
1: of uh, course and getting
3: back to that as you say hazel is uh, you know the- yes I mean
1: I've been tracking local currencies for the last 30 years and I always use local currencies of which there are hundreds of of thousands all over the world, as an indicator of how badly whatever central uh, bank in in that particular country uh, was was doing. And any time you know the macroeconomic policymakers were screwing up, um, you could find uh, local currencies uh, and and local credit unions and uh, uh, and barter uh, coming back.
2: I think things are a little different now, though, because you have these giant cities where people just don't have anything to trade. I mean, if we don't have land where we can grow our own food and trade it with others, so, so we do need the government system... And that's why we've got to lean on them to make some changes that serve well, the people in the local economy.
3: Of money is, uh, as we all know, it's it just credit, and so it is limitless. And that's really what I think were the ex- ex- certainly exciting, maybe even breathtaking aspects of this week as the Fed. Said, oh yeah, okay, we'll cover everything. You you got a debt, we'll cover it. <laughs> that, I know that, that kind of thing. Oh well, yeah. Well, this is a perfect setup for public banking.
1: Yes, and for UBI. Did you hear Neil Kashkari, who is the Fed head in uh, Minneapolis? And he was on Bloomberg, and he just came right out and said it. Yes, um, he says the Fed prints money, and of course we can print uh, uh, all the money that is uh, needed, and we'll keep shoving it out there. And he was going on like that on, on television, you know.
3: Yeah. So, so
1: it's all it's all out in the open now. There's never been any shortage of money. I mean, money is just a string of digits on the, right. on the it's computer. a computer. Credit. Credit,
2: and there's as much credit as you want. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, money is only an advance against a future promise to repay a debt, but, which means credit, which means I'll pay it later, and I'll pay a little interest to get you know to have to pay it later. Or we don't need like collateral, etc. You don't need. To to borrow the money from them. And we business, can take
1: those middlemen, saying. you know, we can take all the bond dealers out of the game and why do we have these middlemen, you know, that exactly. they're not needed anymore. I mean, basically the whole idea of having treasury and the Fed, you know, work more closely together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's coming. So yeah,
3: they're the, doing it right now. So the crisis is exposed the real problem, which is who controls the spigot of getting to get the credit. And that, of course, is the financiers, the, the rentier uh, society that has been determining public policy uh, and, and our future and our current well-being. And again, uh, it comes back to the franchise of banking being in the public interest opposed to in private hands.
1: Absolutely. I think that all of the things that we've been working on for so long um, that they have to come to the fore now because they were just kind of common sense that was just very hard to override the ideology, you know, of neoliberalism and, you know, all of the kind of the growth fetishists. And and suddenly, that's really what we're putting up on our website now. All of the uh, comments we're getting from our advisory board members, you know, from Hong Kong and... Um, Thailand and all over the place, you know, who've been saying all of these things for years and years, you know, that we need to base our economics back in reality, you know, Main Street and the real world. And uh, so uh, I think that if we all work to push that, I mean, I've been watching the debate going on in the Senate now on this $2 trillion bill. And it's just amazing. You know, there's still half a billion in there to bail out um, hotels and airlines and cruise lines, for God's sake, with no strings attached, you know. Not even... And actually, I was watching uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's my favorite candidate who I voted for. I mean, she was on... um, Bloomberg, uh, talking about um, uh, the whole business of buybacks, you know, and what she is proposing is if you're going to do any stuff of bailing out big corporations, that there's just a whole lot, lot of things have to be legally required of companies, not just, you know, hoping that they don't do buybacks, you know.
2: Right. And they've essentially bailed out the banks, though they don't call it a bailout. So, you know, we were always petitioning before that the next time this happens, we want to make sure that the banks are required to use their funds appropriately, et cetera yes. that they're actually public utilities. But yes. that's, that's been bypassed because it's a backdoor bailout. It's not obvious. You know, nobody voted yep. on it. The Senate didn't vote on it, or the Congress didn't vote on it. Yeah. Uh, Fed just did it using their alleged emergency powers under Section 133, I think. But the one thing they bypassed or didn't do was uh, helping the state and local uh, state and local governments, which they, yes. they've got another provision that makes that quite. They don't even have to go to the treasury, you know, and get approval like under 133. So that's what, that's one thing we're pushing for. Um, you wrote this excellent piece uh, called Pandemics Lessons Looking Back from 2050, along with Fritjof Katrin.
1: My Catra. buddy, I have uh, co authored stuff with Fritjof for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> We've been sort of intellectual companions, and he did. He ended up doing a deep dive into the ecosystems with his last book, you know, the systems view of life, uh-huh. and all of that. And of course, I decided to do a deep dive into the human, more the human condition. <laughs> and so it was great to reconnect with him on this piece, you know, because um, it's so clear now. I, I was just reading a piece by one of our advisors, Professor Walden Bellow, who has been a, a legislator in the Philippines for many years. And he's he was just pointing out, you know, with this whole Belt and Road thing that mm-hmm. the Chinese have been doing. You know, the Chinese obviously uh, have a huge huge opportunity here to kind of take over the whole globalization agenda. And he was saying, uh, which is rather similar to what Frithoff and I were saying, that just the amount of incursions into environments that Belt and Road will require, um, they're talking about um, additional alien species which will be driven out of forest areas. 98 new amphibians, 177 reptiles, 391 birds, and 150 mammals will now be Another threat to the humans, you know, due to um, the transmission of viruses. So the the thing that's so interesting about the globalization model using, you know, neoclassical economic cash only GDP kind of model has just left us all so incredibly vulnerable. You know, the whole just-in-time supply chain where we suddenly find that all of our face masks, hey, they come from China, you know, and all of our pharmaceuticals come from China.
2: Yeah, it's one of those uh, emperor has no clothes moments. or Isn't it? when the tide is out, you can see who's swimming naked.
1: Yes, so, absolutely. I mean, I, that
2: was kind of the gist of your uh, paper, just so. saying this all along, but nobody bought it, you know, the, every. Things yes. seem to be going along fine. The stock market's doing great, and that's the politician's barometer of whether the economy's doing well. But underneath, there were all these deficiencies and weaknesses, and things yes. didn't work. And now, <laughs> when we're in a crisis, we can see that they didn't work, and we absolutely have to change the system. Yes. But whether we will, I don't know, because like the Fed has stepped in and exercised all these powers, Without authorization, and they're bailing out the banks. So we can't say, "Well, you've got to make those big banks be public utilities now because you bailed them out," because it's already been done. You know, there's no leverage. Would that, that they fail to use the the leverage power that they could have used there? So anyway, that's the, so our big conundrum right now is how do we get this message out there, and how do we get some real Uh, change that's all for the better instead of just, um, you know, sort of band-aids, and then in two months they'll say, okay, crisis is over, back to business as
1: usual. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it it seems like, you know, what Fritjof Capra and I were just saying is that, um, you know, this whole uh, sort of small is beautiful idea that many of us had in the 1970s, you know, um, with community-owned wind generators and solar farms and farmers markets and uh, organic agriculture and all of that, um, just seems now just to make the most eminent sense, you know.
3: Yes, Uh, and changes the nature of markets, you know, from money to service. (laughs)
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I wrote a paper... Um, called Markets, uh, Problem Twins, Advertising and Trading, pointing out that both of those activities have been in excess for quite a long time. And uh, that one of the problems now is we're still using the old ideology from the Cold War and the last century, you know, of communism versus capitalism, and we fought wars over it and everything like that. And the whole thing is that there's nothing wrong with markets. I mean, uh, markets are in human DNA. We've been doing markets ever since we came out of trees. And markets evolve, and they're still evolving, and they're evolving now in the direction of the Green New Deal. So what's wrong with that, you know? One of the most valuable books in our 9,000-volume library here, um, it, it's the library about what's wrong with uh, with conventional economics, <laughs> and the you know, the, and the green economy library. And basically, this book came out, uh, and it's called Depression Script. I don't know if you've seen this book, but it, it's about 400 pages of pictures of local currencies that were um, in our uh, transmission in the 1930s after the bank holidays. And most of them were like tax anticipation notes of local uh, fiscs, or they were uh, unemployed workers, uh, promissory notes. And um, I used to always, whenever I was going out giving a a lecture someplace, uh, I I would always take a page out of this catalog um, to, you know, representing the local currencies in the area that I was going to be speaking. And I would throw it up, you know, on uh, an overhead uh, and always somebody in the audience says, oh, I remember my dad had some of those in his his, uh, closet, in his drawer and you know that was one of the reasons we got through the depression what the fed did you know and um how we sort of have to shift you know to radically new ideas on the fiscal side right you know that, that
2: was a that was another article that was basically the emperor has no clothes that uh, they've all along they've said no we can't do this we can't do that you know you can't do a universal basic income because it'll be inflationary uh, where are you going to get the money, all that stuff.
1: That stuff. When,
2: <laughs> when we have a crisis, all of a sudden where to get the money is absolutely no problem. It's like in wartime. They always yes. manage to <laughs> come up with the money in wartime. But also right. this is war against a virus, I guess. So. Sure. It shows that the money's there. So of
1: course, of money course.
2: For a UBI or whatever else. Yes.
1: Well, you know, Andrew Yang. I'm I'm glad that he's now a um, a pundit uh, on MSNBC. So we hear Andrew Yang now and um, his UBI proposals all the time. He's probably realised it's far better to be a pundit on the television
3: <laughs> than it is to run for
1: president.
3: Right. <laughs> we were. We were fortunate to have him as a guest on this program. Oh, uh, good! Before he announced his candidacy, and of course, it was the UBI thread, um, but and which comes out of a, uh, a, you know, the notion that money is always available. Of course, money is, uh, as we all know, it's, it's just credit, and so it is limitless. And that's really what I think were the ex- ex- certainly exciting, maybe even breathtaking aspects of this week as the Fed.
1: Oh, yeah,
3: We'll cover everything you got a debt we'll cover it you <laughs> know that, that kind of thing oh well, yeah well this is a perfect setup for public banking definitely
1: uh, for- Yes, and for UBI. I mean, did you hear Neil Kashkari, who is the Fed head in uh, Minneapolis? And he was on yesterday on Bloomberg, and he just came right out and said it. Yes, um, he says the Fed prints money, and of course we can print uh, uh, all the money that is uh, needed, and we'll keep shoving it out (laughs) there. And he was going on like that on, on television, you know. (laughs)
3: yeah <laughs> so right.
1: it's all it's all out in the open now
2: mm-hmm. there's
1: never been any shortage of money I mean money is just a string of digits on the, right. on the it's computer a credit
2: and there's as much credit as you want uh, I mean uh, it's, uh, money is only an advance against a future promise to repay it's yes. all debt which means credit which means i'll pay it later and I'll pay a little interest to get you know to have yes. the time to pay it later so Would we you? don't need. We don't need banks, or we don't need, like, collateral, etc. You don't need to borrow the money from someone else. And we can take
1: those middlemen. You know, we can take all the bond dealers out of the game. And why do we have these middlemen, you know, that they're not needed anymore? I mean, basically, the whole idea of having Treasury and the Fed, you know, work more closely together, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's coming. Yeah. No.
3: Hope. Yeah. Well, so, they're, so
1: yeah, the, they're
3: doing it right now. So the crisis is exposed. The real problem, which is uh, with the middlemen, or is, you know, wh- who controls the spigot of who says yeah. who can get the credit, and that, of course, is called the oligarchy. I suppose may as well uh, the plutocracy, the people who are the money, the financiers, the uh, the rentier, uh, society that has been determining public policy, uh, and and our future and our current well-being. And again, uh, it comes back to the franchise of banking being in the public interest as opposed to in private hands.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. So I wanted to just finish the thought about the TV special that we uplinked ourselves here from Ethical Markets to the PBS network almost 10 years ago called the Money Fix. And it was the politics of money creation and credit allocation. And we pointed out, you know, in very great detail uh, how uh, this was done and, and who, uh, who made the decisions and, and how it was that, you know, quantitative easing printed the money and the whole issue was who they gave it to. Did They give it to their friends you know, in the banking system hoping it would trickle down or whatever. And the other half was all about um, local um, how how nature 's economy works and how local societies work and and all, all of the amount of bartering and swapping that goes on when uh, the banking system fails and um, that we 've had so much feedback from that show over the years you know, and we uplinked it again, and people say it changed their lives and and so one of the groups we 've been working with recently is based in London called Positive Money. Do you know those folks?
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: I did a review on a green uh, Bank of England, and I just loved the fact, you know, we posted the news that when Christine Lagarde became president of the ECB about two months ago, they went right into her office and got her on videotape saying that she would take a look at the whole idea of green quantitative easing. So they are they are really on it. Now here's what I I wanted to throw out a question to you guys and that re- regards the actual biology of the coronavirus. And um, what's going on today, you know, with the debate going on about, um, is the priority the health of the uh, population or is the priority the health of the economy, you know, that back and forth. And uh, the whole thing about testing, now it seems to me that the key number we need to look at is 40%. And what I mean is that we should be testing also for antibodies how many people, it's a a fairly easy blood test, Um, how many people have antibodies in their blood, meaning that they already had the coronavirus probably a month ago and didn't know it. And um, so you find out how many people in the population are now immune because they've already had it and they've got the antibodies. And those people are ready to restart the economy and um and so uh, it, it it reminds me a lot of, of when I was growing up in Britain, and before there was um, any vaccines for um, mumps and measles and w- the way things were done in Britain back then was every mother. Um, made sure that their children had measles and mumps before they were like five years old. And I know in the small town I grew up in, um, there were mumps and measles parties where people made sure that the kids got the the mumps and measles and got it over with. And as a result, you know, I am still uh, 100% immune to those two diseases because right, I have right. the antibodies. So the point is that at some point, um, this idea of because we so screwed up on the testing that we've shut down the entire economy, including the idiocy in, here in Florida of shutting down the beaches, where people need to go out and have exercise, and all you need to do is to have police on the beach to make sure that people don't, you know, congregate. Uh-huh. And and this is what Andrew Cuomo said yesterday in his uh, press briefing. He said we have to open all the parks again um, in New York State. People have to be allowed to go out and exercise. Right, are we and we're going to make uh, people sick. Yeah. Uh, yeah, otherwise not only are we going to prolong the people being sick, but people cooped up in apartments are going to go stir-crazy and, right. and they'll start disobeying the down. rules anyway, you know. Yeah.
2: Start, or you'll yeah. And exactly.
1: So uh, there is a sense uh, in which um, I think we have to, we have to, to get the the biology right and realize that you know we are just uh, like any other mammal species, and that we develop immunities to diseases, um, and that that's kind of the normal process. And, and if we try to totally protect everybody from getting the disease, how do we? How do people get the immunity they need if we don't have a vaccine for, yeah, for another year and a half?
2: it's well, an excellent point. I've got tons and tons of notes. I'd love to write on the whole medical part, but they won't let me because <laughs> I have to write on public <laughs> banking. But, you know, I did 10 books on health and alternative health care before I got into banking, but we're approaching this whole thing wrong. I agree.
1: That's very interesting, Ellen. I didn't realize that. You know, I've been trying to reach politicians here, you know, to say, for heaven's sakes, you know, what could be more stupid in Florida than not having the beaches open?
2: In Germany, you're not allowed to congregate more than two people.
1: That's absolutely ridiculous because people can't live that way. And what will happen, it will just create civil disobedience. We've got 2,000 miles of beaches around this ah. coastline. And the idea of of closing those off when people desperately need to exercise,
3: mm-hmm. it's a, um,
1: unbelievable. Yeah.
3: When you talk about an uprising, we look at the economics of the current moment, and we see that people are pushed to the test. It, you know, the, there's an upwising, as our friend S- Swami Beyond Ananda, Steve Behrman says, <laughs> up, upwising about how things are ordered. It Doesn't this suggest that this is a very rich time for us to push really as hard as possible against the prevailing a private capital matrix that is here? How might we go about pushing public banking opportunity in this crisis at this
1: moment? I think it's just going to become more and more obvious to people uh, when markets work and when they don't work. And I mean, right now, um, to try to do things the way we're doing them, we've seen the colossal market failure in this for-profit-based health care system, which I'm sure is uniting the thinking of Joe Biden. Biden with that of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, you know that it, it clearly doesn't work I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in Britain with the National Health Service and you know for us uh, There was it wasn't about money and it wasn't about markets or profits It was that the health care was a right and that if you didn't provide health care to everybody then everybody was in danger and we've now discovered uh, in front of our very eyes that that's what's happening here. So uh, I think there are uh, analogies across the whole private sector type of thinking, you know, that uh, markets work beautifully at the local level, you know, like the farmer's market we have here every Saturday where I buy all my organic fruit and vegetables. I mean, markets work Uh, very well, if they're really tied to the real economy, and they're locally embedded. But uh, the moment markets escape out into this, you know, high frequency computerized trading on Wall Street, which I've been criticizing for years, where trading has actually become an addiction, like gambling, uh, and uh, the same thing with advertising. I mean, advertising was sort of introduced way back uh, after World War II, uh, the idea that we needed somehow to hype consumption, and we don't need it anymore, you know. So uh, markets always go out of control uh, once they leave the real the real economy. So, I mean, that's where public banking, um, you know, is so important because it keeps the, the whole thing the way it should be, which, as we all know, it should be simply a public utility.
2: I totally agree, but I've thought about that on advertising. I mean, it's so annoying, but it is in a free market, it is your your only way to get out there. Like even writing a book, you know, you've got to get it out there somehow so people know that it's there. And if you have a new product, how are people supposed to hear about it? So, I mean, it, it is kind of a fine line. We can't just ban advertising altogether. But it,
1: you're right, it's gotten way, way... It doesn't have to have tax credits and tax exemptions. Oh,
3: yeah. You know, we've talked about money being a relationship. It's fundamentally a relationship between people, but people's own relationship to themselves around money, uh, the sense of self-identification, which is reinforced by these advertising images and pursuits and desires, is part of the paradigm shift, I think, uh, as we find ourselves moving away from a growth economy that has to acquire more, acquire more, acquire more, uh, that we can grow back together.
1: So uh, going back to advertising for a minute, that's why I set up the um, advertising award for advertising that uplifts the human spirit in society. Most of the advertising campaigns that won our awards over the last 10 years, where they really are much more advertising in the public good, in the public interest, about community values and to shift advertising, which is, after all, uh, the the global education education system that we have in default at the moment, which is mostly miseducation about unsustainable kinds of consumption.
3: Well, Hazel, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing us up to speed on the great work that you're doing. Uh, This is a time of transformative possibilities, and you certainly have opened that up uh, for us uh, for decades now with your reimagining markets introducing the whole idea of having an ethical component for our exchange. So thank you for joining us on It's Our Money.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure, Walt, and, and more power to our Public Banking Institute. It's time has come. Take care. All the best.
0: You've been listening to a conversation we had in 2020 with our recently departed friend and colleague, the noted futurist, Hazel Henderson. Economist, pioneering framer for the primacy of nature and community in our world. Hazel's contributions to our social, economic, and environmental consciousness are a legacy for our health and well-being. We'll miss her lively presence and wisdom. You can find her work at ethicalmarkets.com. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Money!